welcome to Property Matters here at Dublin South FM. You can contact the show on Twitter, Facebook, or indeed LinkedIn at iPropertyRadio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Your host for today is myself, Carol Tallon, and I'm delighted to be joined by Helen McCormick, owner of Helen McCormick Estate Agents based in Limerick. Helen, you're very welcome. Thank you very much, Carol. It's lovely to be here and meet you today. Well, I, I'm delighted to have a chance to speak to you because we know anecdotally that estate agents right around the country are exceptionally busy since, um, you know, since we reopened. Um, and mm-hmm. I know, while the restrictions are still a challenge, I'm interested to hear the experience that you you have because you're working, um, I, I won't say one person operation, but you've, you, you've a very small team down in Limerick. So I'm wondering how has your company managed the last couple of months and particularly the last couple of weeks of reopening? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've very much looked forward to reopening after the lockdown. We were extremely busy, however, during the lockdown because, you know, it wasn't the first time that I myself have been through uh, a difficult period because we've lived through the last recession. So nothing was as bad as that. But at the same time, it's you know very conscious of it's not what happens, it's how you manage it. And, you know, immediately the government went out and offered so many different incentives and there was so much business coaching available as well and programs and you know when the lockdown started I went to a 14-week program myself about pivoting the business and a huge pivot for me and many others that I can see as well uh, in our industry was the move to social media uh, particularly when you know there isn't visibility in terms of meeting your clients coming into the office you think well visibility means credibility and ultimately you know sales lettings and profitability so how do I make myself visible during this period So uh, believe it or not, up to then, even though the business was successful, didn't have a social media presence. So instantly the basics are the Facebook account, the Instagram account, start promoting properties. And then, you know, myself on my own LinkedIn, LinkedIn presence. And, you know, so that was that kind of, you know, gives you confidence as well that you're still out there, even though you're locked down. Because at the time we didn't know how long this was going to go on for. So being out there then and seeing other agents and that's a huge part of it is what I really enjoyed is, you know, seeing faces maybe that I'd only seen at seminars or CPD events and you're going, well, there's such and such high and that's what they're doing. And you start to like it. And, you know, previously there was a kind of all this, this competitive factor, you know, between agents. And I think the social media has, you know, really demonstrated how, you know, we're all in different territories. So let's all support each other. And, you know, I've said this before as well, you know, to myself that since the PSRA came in and the clear boundaries around client instructions, there isn't that, that, you know, competitive cutthroat piece between local agents because boundaries around the client instruction are so clear that it makes for really good relationships. So on top of that, plus the, you know, the new for a lot of us presence on the likes of LinkedIn and social media, there's great camaraderie now and support and we're bouncing off each other and getting ideas off each other. You know, some of the more more braver of us have gone out and done video first and others are taking following suit, which is great. Uh, Helen, there's so much good stuff there in what you've yeah. said. Like, first of all, I'm genuinely surprised that, you know, the, your business um, is more than a decade old. And yet mm. you're only seeing the need for social media or a more online presence um, for yourself. Over over lockdown, you know yeah. how. What was the marketing of the business like over the decade before that? Well, I think like like property. Uh, I think the prop- property market and business is quite local. You know, for me as you know an independent trader with a, a manager in the office, uh, so it's all local. So the business to me was all about building long term relationships locally. So I would I would target business through networking groups in Limerick and I'm still members of those groups as well so we would like refer business to each other and then I think most growth in local businesses comes organically through satisfied customers who refer onto the next person and you know through the recovery in terms of the rental management sector a lot of those rental managed properties organically turned into sales which turned into further management and further sales there was a lot of Organic growth. And if you you get a good name locally, again, you know, the name you can trust. That's really another issue that's often been a huge issue for customers is trust to the state agents. Is there transparency? Is there really a bid on that property? I can't believe we're still hearing that actually sometimes 
because because of the regulation. And, you know, people don't like to be questioned that way. They have their own integrity. But all those issues were always out there. So, you know, being able to build trust and relationships, I think property and the business and a good business in auctioneering and estate agency is it's never about one a one hit wonder. It's always about the relationship and building relationships. And if you sell a house for someone's uh, mom or dad, you get the son, daughter. Like there's a cycle of the of property. You know, you, first of all, you're a student. You go in, you want your student rental. You come out, then you get a good job or you get onto the, the, your employment career. You start saving for a mortgage. You need to rent during that period. Then you go into the first time buyer um, sphere. Then, you know, the family starts to grow. You might go into the second time buyer sphere. You might move on then into your first investment property. So it's a lifelong relationship with people. And if you stay local, you can actually have that. Yeah. Helen, you're dead right. It comes down to reputation. And, you know, every week on the show and indeed for the last number of years, you know, I've had a very strong focus on technology. And I think maybe because I talk about technology and prop tech every week that I maybe don't give the the time um, to to really reinforce the basics, which are, you know, property really is about people. And the technology that's being used is just to enable the people working in uh, in property. And in terms of building trust, you know, from my point of view, I think uh, technology is a great way to bring transparency that feeds that trust. But there's so many ways to do that. And, you know, in a way, when I have a conversation like this, it reminds me that, you know, technology really is just the tool, but actually the basic relationships in property really haven't changed mm. so much. And in fact, if anything, they've probably gotten stronger and that need for um, th- that need to be a trusted name in your locality has probably become even more pronounced over the last number of years. You know, one of the things I've noticed is this move um, and this rise in independent estate agencies. You know, we really saw that coming out of the last crash. and. It was a trend we picked up on early, um, but it was a number of years before we had any stats to show that actually there has been a rise in independent estate agents in Ireland. Why do you mm. think that is? Well, I think people, there's a there's a lot of, um, you know, good salespeople working in the estate agency industry. There's a lot of people who value, put a high value on relationships and People like to do business with people they know, like, and trust. So if an individual feels they're good at, and the Irish, I think, always have an entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, the overheads can be low because, you know, you, you can take a, a smaller type office. So then if somebody's good at that and they're committed and dedicated, they feel, and they have a strong base. A lot of people like have connections in the sporting groups. Limerick is a fantastic sporting city. And they feel they have a network that they would be able to justify having a business out of, you know, could grow from there. And I think, you know, it's just if you're dynamic and uh, you're committed and, you know, you feel maybe it's more there's more it's more financially viable to go out on your own, you know, give it a shot and you have your education and you can go for your license. It's a really good idea. And, um, you, you know, so like, why not if people can? Yeah. And look, geography does play a part. You're based mm. in Limerick City. Limerick mm. has... Limerick really feels like a city on the move and you know it's almost a cliche to say that because it feels like that's been said uh, you know for a number of years but you know we can see the the really large scale projects that are happening the big urban regeneration projects that are working both yeah. public and private um there's such an appetite there it, it maybe give us some insight what it's like yeah. um, across the property market in Limerick at the moment yeah, well, as you said, Carol, in relation to the city itself, I mean, I don't know if people outside Limerick realise this and if, if they've looked at the 2030 and 2041 vision for Limerick, the plans, but it's it's so exciting because Limerick is, Limerick and the Midwest now, not Limerick on its own, Limerick, which is the centre city of the Midwest region, which we call Clare, Tipperary um, and, and Limerick, is going to be the next complement to Dublin, you know, and a huge... Um, a huge critical component of, you know, our future um, economic growth. I mean, there's so much going on, starting with inside the city. I mean, you probably heard last week, LIT just achieved university status, which is phenomenal. We have UL, the Kemi Business School there, which is constantly growing. The opera site has now started as well. Um, 
the development of the 10 acre site previously, the Cleves Toffee factory, which will take seven, it's only seven years. We all know that's going to fly. Like it's, you know, 13 years since the property crash. Think about that. Uh, so there's amazing, there's amazing stuff that's, it's, and it's not something that's going to happen. It's already started. It's already happening. Um, and then we have like the renovation of the Georgian quarter as well. And that's another thing maybe people outside Limerick may not, may not be aware of that Limerick next to Dublin has the biggest Georgian quarter in Ireland and the plans there to actually, you know, the investments to maybe bring people back in to live, renovate those, a lot of those properties. Some of them are actually vacant and to live there residentially as well. So there's, it, it's not even something that's going to happen. We're in it. It's happening. It's extremely exciting. Um, you know, the plan is really for Limerick in the Midwest to be the next Dublin, the infrastructure uh, plans are in place and being developed as well. We have, you know, the sporting capital, the, you know, the cultural city, a very historical city. So it's it's very, very exciting. And, you know, the multinationals, you know, have always spotted Limerick as, and, you know, that that's something that's going back like, you know, 20, 30 years, have always spotted Limerick as, you know, a place to watch. And they're in here now for all this growth. I mean, the building Northern Trust built, um, you know, in the last few years is phenomenal. We've consistent growth in the pharmaceutical and all the huge companies we have uh, since Regenerin came in here in 2014. And that has just drove on, you know, the economy, the demand for property, everything. And that's just, it's actually continuing all the time because of the competitiveness, the education, uh, the quality of the graduates, the quality of our third level institutions, um, the fact as well, I think Limerick has a lovely, you you can live in the city, but yet feel you have this almost country kind of lifestyle, you know, being able to connect to the Atlantic Way. Nobody complains about commuting, like even 30 minutes, you can have, um, you, you can live in a beautiful rural place, like a lakeside town between 30 and 50 minutes outside Limerick. So when you consider all that, I mean, the sky's the limit, isn't it really, in terms yeah. of all the development? Well, let's talk about affordability then, you know, because mm. Limerick certainly has a lot going for it. And that's been true for quite a long time. I'm not sure how well it's been marketed, though, in the past. Yeah. Um, but in terms of, the, so there's a couple of big things. You know, you already have UL and now LIT has achieved university status. Um, we're seeing this growing med tech and pharma industry, which you know, we would assume then that they're able to capture maybe some or, or certainly retain um, graduates so they, they can maybe encourage graduates after they're finished their university training to actually stay in the region. And that's something yeah. that not all university towns and cities can do. Um, mm. But in terms of then buying and renting properties, can early career, um, early stage, stage career, career. Uh, people actually afford to live and rent comfortably in Limerick? They can at the moment, but prices are increasing. And like, you know, Limerick, again, has seen huge increases um, in rents in the last two years in particular, you know, but starting in the last three years. And, you know, I, I have thought, ironically, the 4% rule, which, you know, was brought in, you know, due to the crisis situation in Dublin, and rightly so, uh, ironically, actually pushed on the rents to, to jump quicker. Because, you know, having having managed rents over many years, many landlords just kind of thought, you know, it's fine if I have a good tenant, I'm quite happy. There's no need to upset the apple cart, you know, from my experience anyway. And then when the 4%, you know, came in, people kind of thought they didn't fully understand also, they didn't fully understand really the, the regulations around it. And they started to just really rush to put, to put up rents, you know, um, kind of feeling maybe that, you know, we won't be able to get good value out of our rents going forward. But look, having said that, compared to other places in the country, it's still, uh, people can still afford it. And we have a huge amount of markets within the Limerick market, if I can say that, Carl. Like you can get a one bed can go from like 550 right up to, uh, you know, 1200, depending if it's an exclusive development. You know, you can have a two bed from 700 because some of them could be historic and they might have got caught in that RPZ and they're limited, mightn't have been fast enough to put up a rent, right up to 1600. You know, the three beds can go from 850 up to 1800. So the four beds from 950 to 2000, et cetera, five beds from 1100 to 2400. So sometimes when you see national statistics, 
you you might know where to look, but if you're local, you can actually see there's a huge gamut of different prices. And I think when when the new developments like, you know, Cleves um, factory and the new residential developments, you know, people will move into those, but there will be other cheaper properties available as well, you know, for other renters. And I yeah. think I think as well, you know, the more new properties come onto the market, people will want the higher standard, even though standards of rental accommodation has, thank God, improved significantly. Um, there'll always be the properties that aren't to the standard or the energy ratings of other ones. And they will be a little bit cheaper as well and affordable. Okay. In terms of rental, because Limerick hasn't really experienced the the built rent, maybe that that Dublin has and Cork to a lesser extent, and it hasn't had the same investment um, in terms of student accommodation, while obviously there has been some probably not as much as is required, um, mm. Where do you see where do you see the next wave of investment coming in to build that? Because there are huge ambitious plans by the local authority there. Um, do mm. you think that will be supported by private development and, and private investment? Yeah, well, again, it's the, the cost of building. You know, I mean, it's just it's it's so expensive to build. As we know now, in the last six months, again, materials are just going up and up and up in price, and the. You know, there is a lack of passion and excitement from the private builder to build because of margins, really, you know, with the, you know, between the the local housing authorities and, you know, the the price of materials, the margins they feel are are kind of too small to build. You know, they're not, that is a challenge. It's becoming more government-based, you know, the building. Uh, So I'm not sure what can be done about that. Having said that, conversely to that, the prices of apartments on the market can't be built for those prices. So that's an attractive place for a first-time buyer to go, or again, it's attractive to outside investors, you know, because they're not going to be built for those prices again. We're still we're still selling in Limerick at prices that you can't actually build them for. You know, okay. so that's another way of looking at the attractiveness of buying yeah. in Limerick. And mm-hmm. you know, that type of that type of development then tends to go to um private investors, you know, smaller operators as opposed to institutional investors, you know, mm. and we know uh, en masse across Ireland that 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 profile of investors is leaving the market, you know, yeah. in Limerick. Um, but I actually, in one way, I think they're leaving the Dublin market, but actually they're still very evident in the Watford and Limerick markets, um, yeah. but in terms of in, in terms of new supply coming on for both the 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 private or the the new build and secondhand market. You know, since you've been back in the office and indeed during lockdown, secondhand homes are they coming to the market or what kind of attitudes are you experiencing from your sellers? Yeah, I mean, what's happening now? I'm seeing Carl a lot of is that people who had been waiting for the right time to sell. And this could be over a number of years. This could be since the recovery. They're going, right, now I'm going to sell. Now, as we know, um, you know, and rightly so as well, the RTB introduced longer notice periods to tenants. So I can, I, I am almost certain this goes right across the board with agents in the city. There are a huge amount of notices gone out to tenants in the last number of weeks. Some of them could be up to a year giving them notice. So people who have investment properties that maybe still aren't at the peak price that they paid for them way back in 2005 or six, they could still be 30% below that because they might have bought them on a tax incentive. Those people are now saying, well, I think this is as good as it's going to get for a certain period for me in terms of the recovery. I'm going to get out now, you know? Um, I mean, you know, it's it's good for them and that they're trying to recoup some of their losses, still huge losses for a lot of those people. But then it's a case of right, where are the tenants going to go? You're 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 back to that, you know. But um secondhand houses, yeah, secondhand properties, they are coming onto the market and people are finding it's a good time for them to sell. The trader up uh you know side of the market is doing really, really well. What's happening again now, and it's the first time I've seen it in I'd say since the boom, that people are actually now going out to look for properties confidently knowing that they can sell their three or four bed semi in the suburbs and maybe even slightly outside within a matter of weeks. So whereas previously people just wouldn't speculate like that, 
they're now actually in a speculative mindset again about trader upping because of the confidence they have in they mightn't have all their funds ready immediately, but they know they can they can sell very quickly. And so the pipeline of buyers and and you know finance ready buyers is there. It is, yeah. And I've seen that in the last since we've opened up, suddenly, you know, there's all these buyers that have all their mortgage approval, you know, and, and last year, you know, um this time last year or maybe a month, two months back, people sales were falling through and mortgage approvals were actually you know, being taken back. And suddenly, all of a sudden, it's all come together again, whether that work was going on in the background all the time or people just felt, right, we need to get those mortgage approvals through so people can start buying. Yeah. Have you come across many buyers who are rushing to use the approval in principle that they have because they're concerned maybe that they won't, you know, if they have to reapply, that there might be a change in circumstances? Yeah. and. Again, from experience, a frenzy can always be a dangerous sign. Like we all, you know, you often feel that frenzy, but it, it'll turn around again and something else will happen. And, you know, they will get back on on, on that ladder, you know, because either new bills will come in and they'll be high, much higher priced and the secondhand stuff will still be there. So, um, I, I mean, personally, I hate to see somebody rushing to get a house. Um, you know, I was I only met a couple yesterday and they were... They looked at a house and it was a first time buy and they were humming and hawing about it. I knew it was I knew they were, as you said, they're in a hurry to, to to spend their money. And I was kind of saying to them, look, like you're probably going to be here 20 years. You know, uh, are you sure you want to really rush this? You know, is this where you, you want to bring up a family? Like, are you happy with the garden? Do you like the area? Do you like what you see when you look out? So like. I think you need, people need to be cautious. It is it is their life after all. And like, don't just spend your mortgage to out of fear that nothing else yeah. is going is going to come up. But yeah. there is a bit of that definitely in the air, Carl. Yeah. Yeah. No, look, I, I, I'm seeing that not just in Dublin, but actually um, right across the country and where it's not driven by maybe mortgage pressure. It's driven by supply pressure that there's just so little supply in the market that buyers think if they don't take this, there will be nothing else. Um, and you're right. Frenzy is a terrible place to be making big financial decisions from. Yeah. Um, during lockdown, with the restrictions that were there, um, did your firm sale agree many properties to people remote, uh, remotely only? Like, did, did you sale agree many properties for buyers who didn't set foot inside the property? Well, the I suppose the type of properties that we, we sale, sale agreed during the lockdown were to investors. So, and they probably would have been an investor that I already had an existing relationship with that kind of we had the know, like, and trust relationship. And they would say, is there anything going? And I might have somebody that, you know, sold with the tenant in the property, which is great. I love to see that as well. Uh, so I might have said, well, this person, instead of serving notice to the tenant, I'd say to them, well, look, if you can get market value, do you want to sell to another investor? They'll keep the tenant, uh, tenant, and they would normally say happy days. So we did a few of those. You know, people expanded their portfolio. People who wanted to get out, I suggested them, well, if you want to leave the tenant, I have a buyer. So I did, I suppose, about five of those. Okay. Um, and and none, none fell through um, when the restrictions eased, because that's one of the things we're tracking at the moment, um, because there's no data on that. So... Uh, we're actually uh, through property district. We're tracking that ourselves from um, speaking to agents to see what properties had sale agreed in order to accommodate viewings during the the restricted period and have subsequently fallen through. Um, yeah, no, I heard Karen, like there was um, like there there were you know the virtual viewings uh, where people were just you know bidding on property. Um, I tried to stay out of that a little bit because I suppose that just taking a more thorough kind of vetting process of, of the buyer and the potential buyer. Um, you know, again, I, I, I'm the type of person that feels that aside from maybe the investment department where somebody already has one in the complex is familiar with the OMC, et cetera, et cetera. They really do need to step foot in the property. And I like to keep that, uh, message out there because it's very good for the industry. It's very good for the business of a state agency, and we certainly, me personally, anyway, I certainly don't want to, uh, you know, to put it out there that 
you can just sell a property and never have to walk in the door of it because I'm conscious of my own role in the industry, you know, and what we do, you know, and I don't want yeah, everything yeah. to go just online into a transactional based uh, you know, set up, but I, I don't think that will happen anyway. You know, but, in, in, in hmm. a way though, Helen, that nearly brings us full circle to where we started the conversation in terms of um, the the fact that this is a trust-based relationship, that it is always about the people and that technology really has a role in facilitating that. So, I mean, you yeah. you mentioned, and, and I, I'm conscious of time here that we need to wrap up shortly, but hmm. you had mentioned that, you know, during lockdown was the time you embraced um, not just uh, digital media for your own firm, but an mm. element of putting yourself out there, not just as the, the company and the business, but yourself, Helen McCormack. And I know yeah. that that um, your company achieved some important accreditation over the period as well for thought leadership. What was that? Yeah, um, I got a thought leader accreditation in real estate from the All-Ireland Business Foundation, which was you know, fantastic honour during the lockdown. So it kept the spirits really high. And I'd heard about the All-Ireland Business Foundation through, uh, I'd been invited to an event in Croke Park some years ago. And I was very impressed by the calibre of businesses associated with it and keynote speakers at the events. So I kind of thought, you know, since 2016, I mean, I highly value technology as well. You know, Carl, we have been implementing systems, processes, uh, you know, to uh, offer a better service to our customers in terms of our management and our sales sector. And I kind of thought, uh, I'd like to go through the process of auditing to see how I come out after having done all that work, you know. And um, I was delighted then, you know, to have got the three stamps of performance, trust and customer centricity because I wanted to position our business as having excellent customer service and being able to share our knowledge and guide and assist people in their decisions. And the thought leader accreditation is a nice, you know, a nice little flowery addition piece that goes on top of what really is the most important thing, the excellence and the customer service. So I was yeah. really delighted with that. Yeah. Well, congratulations. I think it, it, it's a great achievement for your own firm, but I think it's a really important, uh, it's a really important signal for the sector, you know, that that the sector is working well with technology, that it all mm. comes down to serving um, the client, you know, that it is a customer focus uh, uh, and client focused business, you know, at, yeah. at the end of the day, it all comes down to service. So if technology is the tool you use, great, but it comes down to service, it comes down to people. And by the way, you know, again, because my focus is always on the technology, I do appreciate this time, your reminder of that. So thank you for yeah. that. And also, you know, it's great to get an understanding of what's happening in Limerick because it is very much coming to the fore um, in terms of urban regeneration, some really exciting things, pro projects planned. Mm. Um, and I, I understand what you're saying there, that maybe the, the passion and the appetite isn't there from the private sector investment yet, but mm. that's surely the next step. That's surely the next step um, in the process. And it's something we'd love to see for Limited yeah. because the potential is there. It just needs, needs Absolutely. to be Absolutely. So um, yeah. thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks very much, Carol. You'll have to come down sometime. Show I, you around. I, I would only love to. Now the restrictions have eased. That that's exactly my plan. Um, yeah. That was Helen McCormack, owner of Helen McCormack Estate Agents, based in Limerick. We need to take a quick break now. Stay tuned. Ninety three point nine, Dublin South FM. And welcome back to Property Matters on Dublin South FM with myself, Carol Tallon. You can contact us on Twitter at iPropertyRadio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. I'm now delighted to be joined by Professor Andrew Baum, Professor of Practice, Said Business School from the University of Oxford. Um, Andrew, thank you so much for being with us today. This is your first time on the show, but your name has been thrown around quite often. You've been quoted quite heavily here in our PropTech, sec in our PropTech section. So thank you so much for being with us today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for asking me. I've got happy memories of being in Dublin and it's nice to nice to be back, even if it's just um, remotely. Thank you. Well, Andrew, you're very welcome into studio. At the moment, we're, we're recording from home as well. But when we're back in studio, we'd be only too delighted to welcome you there. Um, so, Andrew, as I mentioned, you know, your name will be familiar to anybody who's been listening into the show. We're now in our third year so. Yeah, like I said, you've been quoted quite heavily during that time. Um, but you might just give people a little bit of a background, because as I introduced there, you are with the, the professor practice with Said Business School. Um, but how long have you been involved uh, in the real estate uh, and lecturing in the real estate industry? 
Um, a really, really, really long time, Carol. So I, this is, um, I, I went to uh, Reading University to study real estate when I was 17 years old in 1970. Um, I, I started teaching at the university in 1975. Um, I've got three real estate degrees from the University of Reading. Uh, since 1990, I've been working for either one day or two days a week in the university, whether it be Reading, Cambridge or Oxford and doing some visiting stuff in North Carolina and Sydney. Um, I was also visiting uh, examiner at DIT in Bolton Street for a while, which I really enjoyed. Um, but for the other three or four days a week, I've been um, in, in business either as a uh, CIO, chief investment officer, or a head of strategy or head of research for people like Prudential, Nuveen, um, CBRE Global Investors, uh, Invesco and others. So uh, I continue to have a business interest and a business life. And the classroom is a place where I really enjoy. Uh, I enjoy being in the classroom. And I think the students probably appreciate the uh, the real life case studies. Yeah, I've, I've no doubt. Um, I didn't realise that you had spent time uh, at DIT. So were you visiting there? Yeah, I was the I was the examiner for three years, I think. And um, yeah, always, always great fun. Um, always great going to go into the, the Museum of Irish History and being told that the English aren't as nice as we think we are. You know, so uh, I mean, I really enjoyed my cultural exposure in Dublin and um, I'm looking forward to coming back. Oh, very good. Well, actually, when you are coming back, be sure to visit. Uh, DIT is now um, TU, uh, Technical University Dublin, and the new facility at Grange Gorman is stunning. So you will get a, a great surprise when you visit that. So I recommend it. Um, right. But in, in terms of your background, so it's good that you have that, uh, that you've kind of kept that one foot in industry and one foot in academia. How important is that when we're looking at innovation at a very real level that can actually um, impact the industry and that that is uh, readily um, accessible to the industry. How important is that um, to, to have the, the commercial and the academic focus for an industry as traditional as real estate? Well, uh, this is a constant, there's a constant tension here. You know, it, it, I mean, from my perspective, it's ideal to be partly in business and partly at the university. From the university's point of view, it's not ideal because it needs completely committed academics who are going to publish in the best journals. And to do that, it takes a long time. You know, the average time to publish in a really good journal is probably two years. And the world of innovation in real estate might move slowly, but it doesn't move that slowly. You know, you don't want to wait, you don't write something and wait two years for it to be published. So there's a compromise going on all the time, you know, and, um, you know, I can't be a brilliant business person if I'm only working three days a week. So there's a compromise all over the place. But I have to say, I think the, the benefit of doing both is that I can organize my thoughts when I'm in the university. I can, I can construct a PowerPoint presentation pretty well. And I think that goes down pretty well when you're talking to business people that need their thoughts structuring and being organized. And it works the other way around in the classroom, as I've said before. So. Um, the, the, I think what happens is you just have to work six days a week, which I've been doing for you know the last twenty five years or so, and um, and just work hard, you know. I, I think that you'll find that's quite symptomatic of every entrepreneur in the industry, um, and particularly what we're seeing across the startup sector in prop tech and construction technology at the moment. Uh, but one of the things I was really interested about is um, I first became really aware and involved. Um, I, I think I learned the term uh, prop tech back in. Uh, about 2015, but I'd been very passionate about innovation and I'd been in the industry for about a decade before that. Um, so it wasn't so much that the innovation was new, um, the use of technology was, but there was a lot of new language and terminology around it. Um, but your report in about 2016 was one of the foundational um, pieces of research. So you might just take us back how to how how you got involved in that. Um. Yeah, sure. I, I think I think we we need to go back to ninety seven, really ninety seven, ninety eight. I mean, I was working in the real estate industry in London in ninety six, ninety seven, ninety eight, and. Uh, uh, the the internet came along, so email came along, and you know we, before that we were actually sending uh, paper letters and all that sort of stuff and using the telephone. So uh, observing the internet, I, I saw the dot com boom of ninety nine, um, and I got you know I got I got involved in the dot com boom in ninety nine two thousand. The dot com boom is really best remembered as a dot com bust. You know the two thousand one two thousand two period led to a massive bust. There's a lot of money going into property technology in 1999, 2000. A lot of businesses 
that have that, that survive today, like uh, CoStar, Argus, um, in the UK, Right Move, in the US, Zillow, these sort of residential listing sites. They came out of the ashes of the prop of the dot com bust. Um, I started a, you know, first of all, I was I was editor of a property encyclopedia in 1999, and we realised about two years in that we should really be putting the thing online. And we had to completely redesign our business model and go for an online business information product. In 2001, I also started a, um, a database of property funds globally, and that immediately went online. You know, it, originally it was CD, CD-ROMs that we were posting out to people, but eventually that became a website and that still exists today. So I think I, I, think I did start a prop tech business in 2001, and I, and I call that, you know, PropTech 1.0. So that, that period is PropTech 1.0. Then, then sort of there's the dot-com bust. We went through a, a period when people weren't really interested in technology. It was all about money. It was all about bank debt, buying as many buildings as you could. The, the, the property boom of 2003, 4, 5, 6, which Dublin is probably the epicenter of it, if you think about it. You know, the, the boom that was going on was incredible. You know, the amount of bank debt that was being secured was incredible. So nobody was really worried about technology at that time. It was all about debt. And then, you know, the, the crash, 2008 crash, coincided with the launch of the Apple App Store. And uh, the iPhone 4 was out in 2008. The App Store was launched. And you've got a younger generation who are now skeptical about the way in which the traditional markets can bust themselves. You know, we've got an, a bust banking system. We've got people that you can't trust running funds um, you've got people just script, taking huge bonuses out of the industry when people are losing their jobs. So, you know, there must be a better way of doing this. So the App Store appeared to be a better way of communicating. And if you think about this, this is one of my most sort of simple rules or, or sort of aid memoir is the world is just full of billions of rooms and billions of people. And those billions of rooms and billions of people are trying to connect with each other all the time. You know, we're, we're constantly looking to go into residential accommodation, offices, shops, pubs, bars, whatever. And, and before 2008, the way in which rooms communicated with people was through brokers, through newspaper adverts, through, you know, on, through websites. But it was pretty clunky. And the app store suddenly gave us this formula whereby people could go through a platform to communicate directly with the rooms. And of course, that's Airbnb. So Airbnb is created in 2008. And um, and it became a you know a billion dollar business a unicorn and then we can repeat that formula over and over again we've got rooms we've got people and we've got an app and that's that's really the genesis of PropTech 2.0. Okay, and on that basis, you know, you're talking about a skepticism that existed and perhaps a distrust of systems. Um, I, I like the distrust may not have been new and the skepticism, but maybe the actions coming out of it were new. So certainly in the early stages for PropTech, what you would describe as PropTech 2.0, um, we were seeing a lot of consumer led innovation and that seemed to be born out of the skepticism and frustration. But already we're seeing um, just five years, six years on, already we're seeing a shift towards more industry-led innovation. Is that is that just something we're witnessing uh, maybe in Ireland and the UK being maybe a little bit behind some of the other trends or would that really be indicative of how innovation is being driven? Um, well, I, I think there's a natural um, curiosity amongst the man in the street and the woman in the street about why it's not possible to trade your property in three days online. So the, you know, the mass market connects with real estate through housing, through house prices and house purchases. And what they observe is, is that although you can go online now to look at the listings, um, you can't rapidly transact. You've still got to go to a lawyer. You've got to do a lot of work. You, you need to assemble lots of paper documents. And I think the man in the street is genuine, genuinely a little bit confused about why that can't be done more quickly. And if you look at it, you know, it is possible to find reasons why it can't happen particularly quickly. It's, it's just too big a transaction. There's too much risk on behalf of the purchaser. They want to use lawyers because they want the protection of having a lawyer making sure that everything's okay. And if it's not okay, they want to be able to sue the lawyer or they want to be protected. So, so the man in the street, I think, as, as there's been overinvestment in the residential property market, technology, speedy transactions, all that. That's been a bit overblown, a lot of hubris. 
Meanwhile, however, there is a really good reason why commercial property owners need to innovate. You know, they, they really need to innovate. You know, the whole long lease structure where a developer builds a building speculatively, sells it to a pension fund that has got no connection with the tenant, and then sort of subcontracts the property management down to a, a broker or a, a property management company means there's no connection between the development of the of the of the product and the user of the product. And the word customer then has to come into it, right? So if you're running a hotel, the people using your hotel rooms are customers. But an office developer or an office investor doesn't think about his office tenants as, as customers. And this is what this is the real revolution. You know, this is this is what's really going to change because now with with um, with all of the things that have been going on, shorter leases, more power in the hands of tenants relative to landlords because of the creation of massive space, cyberspace. You look at the retail market. You know, there's all this cyberspace now through which we can trade. So the, the owner of retail property is in a less powerful position than he used to be. So now he's having to think about, well, how do I make my customers happy? You know, what do I have to provide? What services do I have to provide? And COVID has done the same to the office owner. You know, so how are you going to get people back into the office five days a week? And what happens if you can't get them back in the office five days a week? Um, you know, do you need to provide wellness facilities? Do you need yoga studios? Do you need great technology? Do you need great coffee? What is it that's going to make your building worthwhile? So we're now entering this phase where we need to connect customer satisfaction with rental values and lease structures. And of course, the um, the WeWorks, the co the co living sorry, the co working operators have been in the vanguard of thinking about this stuff. And um, I don't think the market will ever be the same again. You know, we used to have 25-year leases in the UK with five-yearly operating rent reviews. We're never going to see that again. Okay, there's so much to unpack in what you've just said there, but let's start with the most recent and work backwards. In terms of commercial property and the long leases, I fully accept um, that there is a, a, a strong demand, a desire for more flexibility, and that flexibility um that flexibility inevitably means shorter term leases, although I am recalling um, a, a masterclass delivered by Anthony Slumbers, who um, obviously um, would be well known for yeah. uh, speaking about space as a service. And, you know, one of the things he he noted through his research uh, and through research that's available is that um Short term or long term leases are getting shorter, but the short term leases are actually getting longer. But in terms of the commercial property long term lease structure, how do we reconcile what the market wants with what funders and landlords can afford to do? Because I, I think sometimes when we have this conversation, um, you know, there needs to be an understanding that each, each, uh, each cog in the wheel has a financial master. Everybody is accountable to somebody. So how can we make the shift that the market wants in relation to the commercial lease structure and still make it viable? Yeah, um, well, I, I, um, I, I don't think this is as big a problem as, as some people possibly feel it is. You know, I think you've got to look at the equity provider and the debt provider differently, I think. So the equity provider has nothing to fear. You know, if you if you produce a good product, then the fact that the lease is short should not be an issue. You know, the the, the relevant data that you need to then focus on is is how quickly do people release the space? What is the dead period? What's the downtime between leases, between the lease end and the new lease? If you start focusing on collecting that data and understanding how it works, you'll generally be pleasantly surprised. You know, the amount of vacancy at the end of a lease is generally short. People generally renew their leases. Tenants generally don't operate break clauses. You know, there's a lot of inertia and a lot of reasons why people want to stay in the same space. So landlords need to be much more confident about the product that they're offering and, and short leases. If that's what people want, then you'll find that your occupancy will be surprisingly positive. Um, debt providers might have a different view, but they, just, they need to catch up with the idea that these things are you know, living assets that, you know, they, they need to be, you know, a five-year debt term is long enough for a five-year lease, and that's probably the match. Um, in, in the past, I think too many, there's been, there's been some dishonesty, really. I think people have tried to use long leases to avoid the inevitable refurbishment cost that they know is, is coming around the corner. And the, you know, the, the old way that a London landlord would think about this was, well, let's, let's build the building 
let's build it as cheaply as we can and let's let it on a 25-year lease to JP Morgan and then sell it to, to a pension fund at a big price. And they're getting it off their balance sheet, right? So they're shifting it onto somebody else's balance sheet. Then the poor old pension fund comes along and they've got it on their balance sheet and they've got a 20-year lease. And at some point down the road, they've got to choose when to sell the building to avoid the big refurbishment cost that is down the road. And, and either they don't and they end up with an empty building, which is 25 years old, which needs completely complete demolition and rebuild and their performance turns out to be awful because they bought the depreciation or they try and get rid of it 10 years early and pass it on to somebody else but somebody's gonna have to pay that price you know and and you know it's much better to have short leases so that you recognize the fact that every every year you need to be spending money on the building just like we do on our houses you know you, you don't you don't want to buy a house leave it for 30 years and then find oh, oh my god i've got to replace all the windows replace all the doors replace the bathroom replace the kitchen you need to be doing it on a rolling basis and that's that's good for the environment it's good for the economy we should be retrofitting everything on a regular basis to produce buildings that are fit for purpose and that will be resilient in capital value terms. So none of this build, build, let it become obsolete and then worry about it later. You know, that, that's gone. Do you think it's two different conversations we need to be having, you know, um, on one hand, office buildings and on the other hand, retail? Because the changes in retail are different to the changes in office while they're both changing a lot. Um, uh, it feels at this stage the rate at which they're changing and the direction in which each are going respectively, it feels like they're going to end up in very different places where retail is going to be more online, whereas offices are going to be more experiential. And that's something that maybe we might have used to describe uh, retail trends. But, you know, just for example, I, I was reading there in The Guardian last week about, I think it was it in, um, somewhere in, in the UK, a Debenham store was taken over by a university and it has been a department store like prior to Debenham. It had been a department store for a, more than 100 years. And now it's going to be used as a training facility and uh, tuition rooms uh, as part of the university for healthcare students. Um, and it just it, it definitely got me thinking about alternative uses for some of these uh, core retail buildings in town centres, you know, so are, are these changes that are coming and that's obviously going to have an impact on lease terms. There's, there's a, a great book, Rethinking Real Estate by Draw Prolegger. Prolegger. I don't know if you've, you've seen that, I'm sure you have. But, you I know, have. his his, his um, analysis of the retail market is really interesting. You know, retail has been, um, has, has always been in flux. You know, there's always been innovation in retail. It's, it's just constantly moving. You know, shopping centres in the UK are not that old. You know, they've, they've sort of covered in-town shopping centres not that old. Retail warehouse parks are pretty new, you know. So there's always innovation and change going on in the retail market. I mean, I think you're right that, that there is continuing change, and it's a real challenge thinking what to do with shopping centres right now. Um, I, I suspect they're going to be experiential, more experiential, just like an office building will be. Um, and, you know, a lot of... A lot of um, a lot of retail property owners are thinking about that. Um, the, the really difficult ones are where, where the rental value is clearly falling and in free fall and the operating costs of those shopping centres remain quite high. And so you've got a real problem there in making money out of them. Um, and it'll be interesting to see whether they offer opportunities for last mile logistics or for residential or, or, or experiential you know, entertainment, whatever it's going to be. But that is a challenge. There's no doubt that's a challenge. I'm more... I'd be more comfortable with a retail warehouse park than, a, than an in-town shopping centre right now. So that is a challenge. There's no doubt about it. And, and But it, it's worth bearing in mind that the best performing property sector for the last 10 years has been high quality retail in Europe. It's not uh, it's not a complete dog. You know, shops in Bond Street are still selling on 3% yields. Yeah. Um, just because you've mentioned uh, Drawer's book there, uh, Rethinking Real Estate, um, and on the subject of rethinking real estate and the future of it, your own university is launching a new programme. Can you tell us a little about that? Yes, thank you. Um, yeah, March the 31st, we're launching a programme called the Oxford Future of Real Estate programme. It's an online programme. Uh, it'll take, it takes spread over six weeks. So you, you spend about seven or eight hours a week for six weeks on six topics, including the future of the commercial property markets, the future of real estate investment, uh, and so on. Um, it's a, about 2,000 euros and anybody can sign up for it. So it's the Oxford Future of Real Estate Programme. 
Very good. And can you give us a little bit of insight about uh, the kind of things that will be covered on the curriculum? And that's that's really a roundabout way for me to hear from you without paying the 2000 euros for the course and spending the time. What are the trends we're likely to be seeing? Because I, I remember reading a lot in early 2020 about the trends we were likely to see. And I am I am exhausted by the cliche of uh, the pandemic accelerating trends. And I think that's an oversimplification. We're definitely seeing a shift. We're seeing um, a shift away. So it's not just an acceleration of trends. But where, where uh, I suppose, given that you're, you're working with research teams here, um, what kind of insights are likely to be shared well, you know, the big the big change, the first unit's about the property universe and the mega trends that are going to be hitting it. And um, a lot of those are pretty deep seated, you know, globalization, um, demographics, you know, migration, um, housing shortages, growing wealth divisions between the rich and the poor, all the impact, social impact and the big one, climate change. You know, so all of those things are much bigger than the COVID effect. And um they, you know, the first module will be considering those things before we move on to looking at valuation, finance, investment in the, in a not a traditional sense particularly, but just thinking about how you model these things. Before we then look at the commercial property markets, the future of retail, future of office, future of logistics, then the housing markets. You know, how do how do we build enough houses for everybody, and how 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 investable is social housing, for example, which is one of the most attractive one of the most attractive investment propositions I've seen in the last three years was affordable housing in Dublin. And, uh, you know, that's a great sector to invest in. Then the fifth module is about development, you know, sustainable development, uh, developing regeneration, regenerating cities, smart buildings, and, and climate resilience. And the sixth module is all about building a resilient global portfolio. So if you had a, a billion pounds to invest, where would you put your money? And it wouldn't look like a traditional real estate portfolio. It wouldn't be 40% retail, 40% office, 20% industrial anymore. It will look completely different. And so the, the students are asked to think about what product would they create to sell to big investors right now. Okay. Do you do you see PropTech actually figuring into that? Like, are we going to see people who might ordinarily have um, invested in real assets maybe begin to look at investing in the technology supporting those real assets? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, so PropTech's like the, uh, the the writing in a sticker rock goes all the way through it. You know, it's just fundamental now. Technology is the the opportunity we have to, uh, to to produce more efficient buildings, more energy efficient buildings, reduce carbon, produce more satisfying urban environments. The whole thing is technology focused and um, we have to take it extremely seriously. Um, Amara's law says that we have overestimate the impact of technology in the in the short run, but we underestimate the impact of technology in the long run. And, and we're rapidly getting close to the long run now. Yeah, you know, I, I've always thought that 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 um, you know that idiom really explains. I I, I think the, it explains the unexplainable, which is human behaviour, um, and maybe that's something that has been accelerated by the pandemic. You know, the culture shift that has to happen because I think that's the thing we tend to underestimate, and yet that's the thing that that slows progress. It's the human factor and the resistance to change, the needing to be convinced. And I think that that's something that might have been very strong prior to the pandemic that maybe, um, you know, has been weakened somewhat. Yeah. I mean, I I think um, human beings do adapt without realising, you know, so um, investment committee papers, we used to get paper maps, you know, we used to get descriptions of where somewhere is. We don't do that anymore. We just go onto Google Maps and we, and we zoom in on the building. We get a picture of it from the, from the air. We can do the street view. We, we got the whole thing in, on technology. Um, we're using Zoom right now. That's going to be something we're very comfortable with. We're, we're using a lot more technology than we than we actually accept we're using. You know, it, it's, it's part of our lives all the time. It's just step by step. You know, we're just getting more and more technologically competent, although um, I'm not as competent as I'd like to be, obviously. Well, I, I something tells me there's still opportunity. Uh, we still have another while to go in lockdown or certainly restrictions. So actually, I, I think there'll be plenty of, of opportunity to get even more familiar. Um, it occurs to me that a lot of the curriculum of the course, it's coming back to the UN's um, Sustainable Development Goals. There's a huge crossover there. Um, there are so many social 
moral, environmental reasons um, for us to be adopting those as an as a, an industry. Have we established the business case for that? Oh, with, Do without, we need to? Without any doubt at all. You know, I, I, I remember talking about sustainability 10 years ago, and it was the word that we, I, I can remember using it thinking, well, I don't really, I don't really get this stuff. I don't really buy it, um, but I know I'm supposed to talk about it. There's no real evidence that it's going to add any value to my portfolio if I prove that I'm producing sustainable buildings. You know, it, it was just the right thing to say and do. Now, there's just no question whatsoever you know, the, the idea that you need to compromise your return in order to do the right thing, I think that's gone. You know, I, I think, I think you know, if you just look at the, you know, sort of um, if we go, go for zero carbon by 2030, for example, if you want to be carbon neutral at 2030, if you buy a building now in 2021, you'll be selling it into a market which is thinking about 2030. And so the value of any, the resale value of a building, which is not going to be energy efficient, in 2028, which is when you're going to be selling it, you're going to be hammered. So it's already in the decision making. It's it's not pie in the sky anymore. It's not liberal wishy washy thinking. It's right in the hardwired finance world now that you know you have to produce ESG uh, acceptable buildings, portfolios, business practices. Um, I chair um, a chair of fund management business in the UK called Newcore Capital. We've just been certified as a B corporation. It means that we have to run our business according to sustainable business principles. Ten percent of our profits go to charity, etc., etc., etc. You know that that is going to help us enormously in raising capital. It's going to help our business because pension funds need to show that they're doing the right thing. And and if we're going to win mandates, we're going to win it from people that have got the right ESG motivations and they're looking for managers with the right ESG motivations. We're only going to buy buildings from developers with the right ESG motivations and so on and so on and so on. And occupiers are only going to take our space if if it's healthy, if it's energy efficient, and if it's not throwing out carbon into the, into the air. So the, the whole that, that game is now, it's, everything's aligned beautifully. And um, Greta Thunberg's done a great job um, COVID has helped, I think. It's just accelerated things a little bit. Um, but there's no doubt that the big issue of, for the next five to 10 years is all about carbon. It's all about environmental performance. And the property market has that issue, you know, front front and sideways everywhere. You know, it's the, it's the big thing that we've got to cope with now. Yeah, no, look, I, I absolutely agree. Um, and in fact, I had the pleasure of speaking to Michael Beckerman and uh, about the launch of uh, Cretech Climate. So that's a, a global initiative to try bring the industry together and align um, on some of the actions that need to happen. So, you know, there are some great global initiatives happening at the moment. Before I let you go, you mentioned something to me and I really, you know, I, I just, I, I'd love to get some kind of clarification around it. I, I You mentioned there that, you know, you feel maybe the prop tech aimed at the residential market and maybe the consumer market might, might have been uh, at this point, it might be a little bit saturated, but at the moment we're still seeing a lot of ad hoc, you know, not not a great amount of cohesion across some of the consumer facing technology. And I you you mentioned that it might be the curiosity of the man in the street as to can this be done better? Um and I agree, I think there is curiosity and confusion, but is there a level of acceptance that when it's a you know, when it's a big transaction for many people, it might be, you know, buying your home or getting your mortgage might be the biggest uh, financial commitment of your life. Is there a, as is there somehow an acceptance that um, it's it's OK not to embrace technologies? Has that has that been is, is that a problem or is this just something that you think technology and time is likely to align uh, people's expectations and they will just get used to doing all these transactions online, like even even co- like consumer facing ones? Um, it's, it's a big question. I, I, I sort of the first the, the reason why transactions will not be instantaneous and online and, and, and costless for quite a while is, is that, number one, we need digital data about the homes. In the in the new build market, we're capable of producing digital you know, property passports, digital twins. 
it is possible to create a digital pack of information which describes everything there is to know about the house, you know, from the architect's plans through to the, you know, the boiler units, um, manuals, whatever. Everything can be digital and handed over in a pack. Um, but that that is not going to work for 95% of the existing property market or housing market because the, the houses don't have that digital record, you know, the, the house I'm sitting in right now was built in 1880. There's no way I've got a digital architect's plan of it. So um, that's going to be slow. And, and, the, and the second the second aspect is that caveat emptor is the rule that we're working with, you know, the buyer beware. And so the buyer is going to be very careful before, you know, instantaneously transacting on a one million pound or euro building. So, um we're going to go carefully down this road. You know, it's going to be it's going to be somewhat slow and painstaking. On the other hand, there's there's no doubt that that um, that we will start to assemble digital records, and and those digital records will be much more efficient. And at the same time, you're going to see the big tech companies like Amazon, Google, and others having a very subtle but insidious impact on the housing market. So Alexa, for example, you know, is going to be in the home. And once it's in the home, it's going to be collecting information about the home. And that feedback, that data feedback will be used to produce more efficient housing. Um, Facebook are already building affordable housing for their employees. You know, I think you're going to naturally find that the big tech companies start to get more and more involved in real estate. Google's built its European headquarters in St Pancras. You know, these things are just getting closer together all the time. So once the big tech companies get involved, um, then then you will see some real change. But but don't expect it to be rapid for ninety five percent of the housing market because we're dealing with with assets with no digital information. You know, um, somebody asked me about. I, I think I. Somebody asked me about a building that I'd owned um, a couple of years ago and said, "Could you could you assemble all the information that the." the the fire safety certificate, the smoke alarm detector stuff, whatever it was. And could I find any of the paperwork? You know, was it on my computer? No. Was it in my filing cabinet? Yes, some of it. Was it my wife's filing cabinet? Yes, some of it. Was it in our lawyer's office? Yes, some of it. I mean, it's a mess. You know, it occurs to me that um, if there was a value in having a second asset, albeit a digital one, in the same way digital twins would be a second asset when uh, design and build teams are handing over an asset to their client, if there was value in that, we'd find a way to make it happen very quickly. Oh, that's for sure. And and there are people out there who are definitely trying to think about that. You know, how do you incentivize people to produce digital property passports? You know, what's the what's in it for them? And I've seen several failed attempts and people will keep trying. You know, Facebook for houses is, is one of the ideas. You know, why, why wouldn't every house have its own Facebook page with its history? You know, who, who owned it before? Um, what parties have you had in it? Who lives nearby? What are the cafes like? You know, there, there's going to be a, you know, a, the potential is there for creating a site for every house in Ireland, every house in England. Um, and why would why do you need to put a house on the market? Why wouldn't you just say, I want to live in Ballsbridge. Is it Ballsbridge? Dublin 4, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah. you know, I want to live in Ballsbridge. That's my favourite street. Why would I just make an offer on all the houses in that street and see what happens? You know, that that's, you know, that's possible. That's technically possible. So I can see us going that way. Um, but what, ha- what needs to happen, as we as you've quite rightly raised, is um, what, what is the incentive for people for loading all this data? And it may simply be that somebody's going to make you an offer without you asking for it. You know, somebody's going to... You know, have you ever had the situation where somebody's put a postcard through your front door letterbox saying, I really want to live in this street, would you sell your house? You know, and it's it's quite yeah, it's quite arousing if you don't mind me using that word. Well, no, I'm afraid I was the person who was putting that note through the letterboxes for about a decade. <laughs> so uh, I, I see the benefit of the hybrid um, on and offline approach. Um, yeah. But listen, thank you. So you've been so generous with your time. I suppose the, the final the final thing maybe to ask, and maybe maybe this question is answered through the, the future of real estate course, but um, has the pandemic um, created any shift in the trends that you were seeing for prop tech um, in 2021 and 2022? Uh, no. Um, I suppose there's a sort of um, an obvious unicorn, which is going to be a health monitor for buildings, which probably lines up with a health monitor for people. So I, I can see that 
the, 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 I suppose this is an idea I didn't have a year ago that, you know, I, I suspect I'll be having a wearable, which will give me access to a building. And, and, you know, if the alarm doesn't go off, then I'm allowed into the building. And, and if I'm walking up and down a street in Dublin, looking for a bar to go into, I might in 2030 be looking for a dial on the outside of that room that tells me that the air's good and that there's not a lot of COVID floating around in the air. And so, you know, that sort of health tech being applied to buildings is probably an accelerated technology invention that we will see more of. Very good. Um, Andrew, again, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and best of luck with the course. I look forward to to uh, monitoring as well the cohort that goes through that course and hopefully we'll be talking to them about their innovations. That was Professor Andrew Baum of um, the Professor of Practice Said Business School, University of Oxford. That's it from us this week. Thank you for listening in to Property Matters on Dublin South FM. You can get in touch with the show on social media at iPropertyRadio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Also, my thanks to Peter Rice on sound. We're back at the same time next week for myself, Carol Talon and all the team here. Stay safe.